Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Mary Roach is a best-selling author of books about the science of death, sex, and space, among other things. For her latest, Grunt, she's turned her focus to the military, but sort of in its wider sense. Like, did you know that the military at one point was studying shark repellent? Want to guess how they came to be studying shark repellent? Well, I'll give you a hint. It was real fun. They were explorers and hunters, and they, they, they it was just kind of a way to get funded to go off on an adventure. Like, we need to go test this in Ecuador. We need to go off the coast of Ecuador, get a boat, get a hotel on the beach, and throw some crap in the water and see what happens with the sharks. And they did this for years. No, oh, those Washington fat cats. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll sit down with Mary Roach. Some of the things she writes about can be pretty dark, like what happens to our bodies after we die. But neither Mary nor many of the people that she writes about let that bring them down. There's a kind of humor that's not disrespectful. It's not meant to be hurtful, but it's just when you're around death or the risk of death or... or I think humor kind of normalizes. It's comforting. If you're laughing, you're happy. Later, I'll talk with the legendary soul singer William Bell. They'll tell me about the early days of Stax Records in Memphis and the sense of family that was created around the pioneering label and its recording studio in the back of a record store. We just kind of grew up together, you know. Uh, it was just a magical place to be, though, for a 15-, 16-year-old back then, learning your craft and all of that. And I'll tell you about the remarkable voice and empathy of former county fair prodigy Tanya Tucker. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mary Roach has made a career out of curiosity. And not just any curiosity, a sort of slightly fancier version of a fifth grader's curiosity. Answering questions like, uh, where do farts come from? Or how do they test the decomposition of cadavers? Or is there a cow with a hole in the side of it uh, that goes straight down all the way into its stomach and you can reach in there and touch the stuff that's in its stomach? Which there totally is. Her latest book is called Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. It's about heat stroke and sleeping in submarines and whether there's really such a thing as shark repellent. Mary Roach, always a pleasure to have you on Bullseye. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, well, I'm going to just go real quick, uh, ask you, is there such a thing as shark repellent? There is shark repellent. There was shark repellent. But is there such a thing as shark repellent that actually repelled sharks? That's the question. <laughs> there, were all, there was shark repellent. Even like the, the Apollo, the, the Mercury, Gemini, the, the splashdown. You know, right. They the, had a they thing came out. that said shark repellent shark on it. Shark chaser. It said shark chaser. And... Isn't that if what you drink after you uh, drink a shark and it tastes bad? <laughs> shark chaser. Yeah. Quick, give me a shark yeah. chaser. Yeah. This stuff smells and tastes horrible. So, yeah. so there is such a thing as shark repellent developed using millions of dollars of all-American money. Yeah, that's right. The OSS in World War II, OSS being precursor to the CIA, 
the OSS. Uh, in, in World War II, it was the first time that uh, pilots were flying over uh, tropical waters and also ships going and sinking sometimes. So people were finding, servicemen were finding themselves in water where there were sharks, and they were flipped out. And they're like, I don't want to fly. I'm not going over it. They were okay being shot down, but it's like, shoot me down, fine, let me die for my country, but I will not be attacked by a shark. So for no, my country. <laughs> for my country, yeah. or for anyone. No Nazi shark is going to eat me. <laughs> no. <laughs> not happening. Not no. worth it. So the OSS was called upon to come up with a shark repellent. And there were those in the Navy who were like, you know, if you look at all of the people who took the oath of the Navy, there's not a single one on record who's been attacked or killed by a shark. We really don't need this. But it was really, it was like what they called a pink pill. Just give them something. to put, It'll be in the life raft. It'll say shark repellent or shark chaser as it came to be. And they'll feel a little bit better. Although other people in the Navy were saying, you know, if you were in our life raft and you discover there's a little packet there that says shark repellent, that now pulls you, you maybe weren't thinking about sharks and now you're really flipped out. So it was probably the last thing. I kind of imagined it as like part of a broader set of programs to develop technologies that Batman used on the Batman TV show from the (laughs) 60s. That was my my only uh, point of reference when I started this chapter was Bat shark repellent. Remember the scene <laughs> yeah. where Batman is dangling and this huge shark is coming up out of the water. He's like, quick, get my bat shark repellent. <laughs> and it was about uh, – that was about the level of the scientific accuracy and um, effectiveness of the shark repellent. But they were, because these guys would just – they had a tank. Uh, they had, there were a couple of places where they had, they had a big tank and they had some sharks and they just throw in there like, let's try this. Well, let's try nicotine. Let's try – Lemons. Let's try decomposing shark flesh. Just throw it in there, and they—you uh, know what it was—is these OSS guys. A lot of them came from the museum field. They were, they were explorers and hunters, and they—it was just kind of a way to get funded to go off on an adventure. Like we need to go test this in Ecuador. We need to go off the coast of Ecuador, get a boat, get a hotel on the beach, and throw some crap in the water and see what happens with the sharks. And they did this for years. I like that you reproduced a letter where a guy basically just writes from Ecuador, uh, sharks difficult to find or something. Yeah, absolutely no sharks. Yeah. 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 And and, uh, they eventually, they took a cue from the octopus. It was just, it was just dye. It's like, put this in the water and it'll be a black cloud and you can hide for about five seconds before it dilutes. That was essentially it with a little bit of some chemical that really didn't do much of anything. I mean, they also seem to have figured out that the best advice when in shark-infested waters is try not to be carrying a dead person's body, which seemed to be the only thing that the sharks were actually interested in. Yeah, or even worse, uh, don't go around uh, as a spearfisher with dead fish hanging on your belt. Because over the years, there's this thing, the International Shark Attack File, and spearfishers, because they have their catch hanging there on their belt, they get attacked all the time because... What attracts the one thing that they the shark research did turn up was that dead and decaying or dying or stressed out fish will attract a shark. And this I love the stressed out bit because they this was this paper where they um, they had sharks in the tank and they wanted to know you know would a, a disturbed or or wounded fish attract the shark. So they put some grouper. Just anything where you use grouper is funny. Just grouper. They put grouper in a bucket because you couldn't have them thrashing around because then the, the the thrashing might attract it. So they put the grouper in a bucket and they created what was called distressed grouper water, which <laughs> happened because they poked 
the grouper and they stressed it out and they dumped. So they took it. They literally poked it with a stick. They poked like, it with a stick. Yes. They had a bucket of fish and they, they poked and they the poked fish the fish, fish. The grouper and they created distressed grouper water. They dumped that in the shark tank. The sh- and the shark heads over and is very excited and commences hunting behavior. And then they took non-stressed grouper water, put that in the shark didn't care. So uh, so <laughs> they determined that if you don't want to get attacked, then just don't be a stressed fish or a dead fish. And don't, even, like, give fish bad news or whatever. Yeah, give, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Even, don't tell a fish their quarterly report is due. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, 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 at one point they had they put uh, a rodent in the water swimming around. The shark ignored it, not interested in rodents. But then they took this substance called mullet blend and they, <laughs> they doused the rat in mullet blend and mullet blend is a substance that's produced by blending the fish mullets yes it's mullet in the blender yeah. with some water uh-huh. that's mullet blend and they they put that all over the the rat put it in the water and now the shark comes over and eats the rat so the yeah the moral of the story is don't don't smear, be a fish yeah or smear yourself with mullet blend yeah. or any other blend of the fishy variety. Uh, there goes my beauty routine, at least when I'm going to the beach. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Mary Roach. And just a quick content warning. Coming up, some podcast-only stuff we weren't able to include on the radio because of certain FCC rules and regulations regarding uh, what they call excretory function. So if you would rather not hear about excretory function, uh, specifically the type of excretory function known popularly as diarrhea, uh, then just give ahead for four minutes. So when you have to talk to, you know, many, most of the stuff in this book is stuff that you learned by interfacing directly with people who are presently in the military, whether they're researchers yeah. uh, or soldiers yeah, um, or sailors or whatever. Um, and so I guess I wonder, like, how do you – I understand how you go to a weird science library or the Library of Congress or whatever, and you go up to that librarian and you say to her, uh, hey, can you bring me all the Mary Roach-type stuff about <laughs> shark repellent? Yeah. And they're like, yes, uh, you're going to be very interested to learn about grouper blend. But how do you write to, like, a military – like, a relatively forward military base and say – I want to come to your base and ask soldiers about their diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, that um I was pretty straightforward. I mean the 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 diarrhea I went all the way to Djibouti, which is a kind of overlooked desert nation in uh-huh. North Africa. Uh I went all the way there to report on diarrhea and this came about just be, because I heard about a uh, a researcher, a diarrhea researcher, who was going there to test a clinical trial of, of a, a much faster one-day, one-dose regimen, and in the and just somehow it came up that uh, the special operations forces, you know, the Navy SEALs and the Army Rangers, those you know, the the people who go in and do the taking out of Osama bin Laden or all the, the you know the kind of high-profile, high-risk stuff, they get diarrhea twice the rate of anyone else because they're out eating in these little villages with the tribal elders and they're eating goat and unfiltered water. And, and I, so I, I thought I need to go, I need to go and, and actually sit down with these guys, these special operations people who were kind of fascinating to me as an outsider uh, and, and, and talk to them. And 
so I said to this public affairs person at the Navy, um, listen, this is what I want to do. I want to report on, I think I may have even, I think I may have called it infectious gastrointestinal disease. I didn't, I didn't use the word diarrhea because that sounded silly. Like who would believe that you're going to go all the way to Djibouti to ask somebody about diarrhea? But when you say uh, infectious gastrointestinal diseases, it sounds, it sounds more legitimate. So she uh, helped set that up, and it, but it was, you know, there was this period of time where there were these emails just bouncing back and forth because no one knew who to ask to get permission for some whack job woman who wants to fly halfway around the world to talk to somebody about their diarrhea. Because you can't even say I'm calling from the New York Times or something no. like that. You could have to say like, oh, hey, I'm a lady that wrote a famous book about cadavers. No. Yeah, I know. But you what I would I what one of the things I would do is is uh s- send a copy of one of my like uh, packing for Mars I guess is the sort of similar, you know, it's astro- it's the human body in extreme situations. So space, war, kind of similar. So I I would send the the book and go, "See, this is what I do. Does this and I want to I want to include a chapter on this. Does this make sense to you? Can you help me?" So I was kind of just upfront with what I do, and I didn't. I didn't want anybody to uh, think I was writing a medical textbook, and then it turns out I'm just some goober with the diarrhea agenda. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I think we've just identified the pull quote from this interview. <laughs> um, so. Uh, you've written books about relatively sensitive subjects before. Uh, you know, your first smash hit book was about death. You wrote a, uh, an entire book about sex. Um, you've even written books where you had to do a lot of military stuff, like you wrote a book about space where, mm-hmm. you know, much of the space program is military. Um, were you nervous about the prospect of doing a book about soldiers and war? I was nervous about uh, writing that in a way that would please Mary Roach readers. That is to say, kind of the usual wingnut goober flip (laughs) cavalier sort of free associating style that I have. Combining that with uh, soldiers and and war and military service. So I I had a lot of trepidation about... um, even just going on the book tour, and what if I'm doing uh, I'm doing a talk, and there's there's someone in the audience who has served and who doesn't think that humor and war can be in the same room, uh, and so I had a lot of yeah I had a lot of anxiety about that. I mean, it hasn't been a problem. It's been it all worked out fine. But uh, what was your experience with war in the military before you started writing the book? I had no experience. I've never been in the military. My dad, my dad. My dad was born in England. He came over on the Lusitania in 1913, had me when he was 65. Okay, he didn't talk a lot about his past. I found out after he died, he had, in World War I, he'd enlisted. And uh, he was at Fort Moultrie, and he got a hernia in basic training. And that's as far, that's as, far as he went. He was out of there. Um, so when you thought about what you wanted to write about, yeah. Uh, when you're facing the prospect of people at war. Um, did you choose specifically uh, not to write about things like transportation and weapons 
mm-hmm. and the things that I think uh, are the staples of anything that's yeah. sort of semi-scientific writing about yeah. the military. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not a tech writer. I don't like to write about technology. And uh, it, there's so much of that. I mean, Wired.com, the Discovery Channel, is essentially, look, here's another big, fancy, exploding thing that we're going to write about. And I, I don't, I, that doesn't interest me. I don't like it. I don't like killing in weapons and guns, and I don't like writing about technology. Uh, but I did find, you know, I, I, there were all these little pockets of, of the military, like military entomology. And, and bioengineering and uh, people who study sweating and how much you sweat. And, and I mean, there's like a mannequin that sweats over at Natick Labs. It's a sweating mannequin. There's all kinds of stuff that appeals to me as me. So it was there was no decision to be made. I just had no interest in the other side of it. And it's, it's covered so much. It's kind of all you ever hear about the military. And the military is kind of this big, sprawling entity that there's little pockets that are kind of fascinating and strange like the guy who you know george peck this military entomologist who he this man loves maggots because they're you know they do this amazing thing you can put them in a wound and they selectively eat the dead tissue and they foster healing and this was discovered in world war one and george peck was trying to you know get the practice reinstated at walter reed and having some difficulty because of course it's maggots and yeah yeah i mean as gross as everything is at walter reed medical center you know just as in any hospital uh, maggots are specifically super gross. Super gross. And your maggots, after a few days in a wound, want to come out and become flies. Now you have flies in the hospital. And that's, you know, flies are uh, uh, disease transmitters, so that's you know, not a, good. A lot of times a military hospital is a no-fly zone. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the first thing that you heard about that you thought, Oh, I bet there's other stuff like this. Uh, I should write a book about this. Yeah. Leech repellent. Leech repellent. <laughs> that was it. I was I was in India. I was reporting a, a story uh, on uh, the world's hottest chili pepper, and there's this ghastly chili pepper eating contest where people are carried away in ambulances and are dousing themselves with water. And But while I was there, someone said, you know, the, the, this pepper, the, the military weaponized this pepper. It turns out, yeah, they did. They kind of made it sort of a locally grown, sustainable version of pepper spray. Um, but it was a powder, and it, it they never fielded it. So that didn't happen. But I was at the, I went to the lab to report on this, and while I was there, there they were working on a leech repellent, and that was the moment where I thought, hmm, yeah, military science, hmm, leech repellent. What else might be going on that's kind of unusual and fascinating, and that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Mary Roach. She's the author of the new book, Grunt. Well, let's talk about stink paste for a minute. <laughs> so uh, you really do a comprehensive, uh, as as they say in uh, uh, media criticism uh, columns these days, deep dive into the world of stink paste um, and uh, various stink sprays, uh, stink balls, um, no stink bombs, as far as I can tell. No. Um, what were the uh, what were the earliest um, examples of attempts at creating stink warfare uh, that you found? Well, I think there were there were some earlier that I didn't cover, but the one that I deep dove into because I had 
a fat file that used to be classified that's been declassified and all the papers are stamped secret, which I really love. Uh, that was an OSS, the wonderful folks that brought you shark repellent. Uh, that was an OSS project in World War II, and it was designed as a foul smell. The original concept was a fecal-smelling thing, and that was – the idea was this, it would be this simple, subtle, small weapon that you would uh, distribute to resistance groups in occupied nations, and they could you – know, motivated citizens could join in and do their little part by going up to a German officer, say, with this tube that you could squeeze, and it would spray this this substance that smelled god-awful. And this, they had the specs as though it were a real weapon. You know, it has got to be lastingly penetrative for two hours at 70 degrees. There can be no backfire. Uh, it has to, And then they had the storage and handling tests of the tubes, and they had all manner of uh, testing. And for, first they had to figure out what, what will this, this bad smell be, and that was a whole other months and months of um, concocting things at the Arthur Little uh, chemist chemists. Arthur Little was a group well, of I chemists. Like, I like the idea that at the OSS, yeah. there was a group of people who were dedicated to coming up with ideas that were f- the weapon equivalent of taping a kick me sign yes. to somebody's back. Yeah. The, the, goal, the goal was humiliation and um, ostracization, if that is a word. Yeah, it's a very subtle thing. And two years were spent on this and millions of dollars. Uh, they had all kinds of problems with deploy- with, the, with the weapon deployment. There, there was dribble, there was ooze, there was leakage in storage, there was backfire. Uh, and I mean, you, among other things, you have to be careful that no one can identify who dealt it. Exactly. And there was even, they had a, they, they had a a compound added to it that would delay the odor onset so that the operator might escape. <laughs> so you would squeeze it and you had like 10 seconds to get away. Uh, so the whole thing, the whole thing was, was designed as though it was like a, a little pocket incendiary or a tiny wep- or a tiny pistol or something. It was this, it was treated like a weapon. One of the most interesting things about it is that you can, you know, there are smells that you or I think of as foul. Um, but in order to create a weapon, a stink weapon, uh, you have to identify which of those things are foul independent of their context. And then you have to identify which of those smells which are foul independent of their context are also foul transculturally. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that that work has been done. Yeah, I mean, the example of that is uh, butyric acid which in a deli, uh, Parmesan cheese has that smell. You sniff uh, a Parmesan cheese and it smells... Funky. Funky, yeah. Dirty feet or vomit, I forget. Yeah. But anyway, it depending on the kind... Also, uh, trimethylamine is uh, a fishy smell. But as somebody at the Arthur Little Company pointed out, uh, <laughs> a fishy smell which is pleasant or unpleasant depending on circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> Trimethylamine is something that the uh, that when you're testing a douche, you use trimethylamine as your the smell that must be conquered. <laughs> so, lest I didn't we didn't make that clear there, lest I was being too subtle. Uh, but yeah, it has to be uh, universally foul. Uh, and 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 also they the, they realized early on that in fact it was good if you if you did a mixture because that is bewildering. 
And since the sense of smell is a sort of a scent, it's a security system. So if something is smells funky and weird and you can't identify it, now you're scared of it. Not only is it gross, but it's kind of freaking you out. So they so they started adding to things to make it not smell just like a latrine or like you've shat yourself, which was the original idea of Stanley Lovell, the research director at OSS. That was the original concept. I was particularly delighted by a relatively recent innovation in stink technology, which was the addition of floral top notes. That's brilliant. Yeah, Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. I love these people. Any excuse over the years to go to Monell, (laughs) the stink people, the smell people. The Monell Chemical Senses, those being, yeah, taste and smell are the chemical senses. You originally referred to Monell by the American Stank Association. (laughs) (laughs) The... Uh, I went, I went, they, and they have the old OSS, they have an archival version of the old OSS, uh, Who Me was the, the, <laughs> that, was the code that was the code name, Who Me, <laughs> Who Me, uh, they had some of that, they had butyric acid, they had all the stinks, they have them under a fume hood, and they let me smell them all, and, and they brought out with some reverence, stench soup, which in the, in late, in the late, in 1998, I think it was the joint non-lethal weapons directorate asked the Monell Center to come up with uh, a stench that was universal. Any culture would smell it, find it horrible, frightening. Uh, no one would find it. There were some of these were some of the options. Nobody would check off wearable or edible. And, and a, <laughs> a lot of the smells like like burnt hair and filth, dirty feet and vomit. Uh, there'd be like three percent of any population that go like, yeah, I'd, I'd wear that as a perfume. Yeah, <laughs> so. Uh, they so they get, they get the uh, the winner was U.S. government standard bathroom malodor, which was a compound designed for testing latrine deodorants. You know, this was what you had to conquer, and it's really bad, and everyone all around the world hates it. But what you were getting at, the brilliant little trick that they did, they added a sweet, a kind of floral, pleasant smelling top note, because when you sniff something new, your first sniff is a little tentative, so you just get this nice smell. And that encourages you then to take the keeper inhale <laughs> and really inhale. And then you get hit with this horrible uh, foul smell. So that is stench soup. Let's talk about underwater submarines. Okay. That variety that's of the, submarine. That's the number as one. As opposed to the hovering ones. Yes, it's the number one type of submarine. <laughs> um, so uh, what got you interested in submarines in the first place? They're submarines. Yeah, I, I know. Agree. Yeah, like Das Boot what or the, whatever. Exactly, Das you, Boot. Even U five seven one is enough to interest one in submarines, and oh, that's a real yeah. B minus submarine movie. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that one. But, yeah, well, but, or, you or like or Dead Wake, the the the, the Eric Larson book with the the, the Lusitania and then the U boat captain yeah. getting closer and closer. No, Das Boot. Yeah, or Boot. Bing, bing. Oh man, yeah. it's such a thing for the sonar guy. I can understand that. Yeah. I have a thing for anything inside of a submarine I, uh, in film form because it's just autom- – it's it's the, like, rare category of film where even a B-minus submarine movie, to me, yeah. gets an overall A-minus. Like, oh, it's yeah. a full-grade yeah. upgrade if it takes place on a submarine. It took me a year and a half to get on a ballistic missile submarine. I mean, it seems weird that you were allowed on a submarine at all. That seems a little dicey. Uh, like uh, Especially national given, security wise, right? Yeah, the, and there were people who did feel there were a couple women on board from the 
another arm of strategic deterrence. The 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 bombs in the capsules in the Midwest. There were two right. women. Like they're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> How did you get on here? At one point, they threw me out of the control room. They're, they're like, she shouldn't be in here. There's classified information. And you're like, um, I happen to be a very serious author. Here's a chapter I wrote about SpaceX. <laughs> Did you say SpaceX or space sex? Uh, well, you've written about both, I'm sure. <laughs> I, yeah. I said the more vulgar of those two. <laughs> I went lowest common denominator, but yeah. Yeah, well, and there were – at one point I was uh, I was interviewing the commanding officer of the sub. They took my tape recorder away, but they would give it back to me to, to do interviews. And we were sitting in a room, and at the end of it he said, you know, I think there might have been something classified that was said over the – PA system, whatever you call it on a submarine, there's a term that yeah. I'm forgetting. Anyway, it was a speaker in the room. And he said, can you delete, can you just erase that? I said, it's an MP3 file. I can't have to delete the whole thing. Uh, and uh, so he uh, he said, well, either you have to delete the whole thing or I have to transcribe it. Uh, and I was, I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> I hate transcribing. This poor guy who's so busy, who's just, you know, getting three hours sleep a night, I, you know, for the course of the day is sitting hunched over a laptop transcribing my tape because one word was said that might be classified or that was and that word was i don't know and at the end of it they actually they took my notebook and they said we have to look we have to read your notes and i thought oh even the part where i'm describing what you look like and uh so he he went he said i'm just gonna i'm going to scan for certain words and i said i stupidly said well why don't you just tell me what the words are and i'll tell you if they're in (laughs) Tell me what the classified words are, and I'll tell you if they're in my notes. So he sat there, and he scanned the entire uh, reporter's notebook. Having spent all this time uh, with military people on military bases, on a submarine, uh, reading ridiculous things that the OSS did in the early 1940s, um, how do you feel like it changed your idea of what it is to be in the military? My sense of the military was from movies and books, it and I and and there's not a lot of time and uh, focus on sort of you know the 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 less cinematic elements of it, and just the, the extent to which it's a really intense, unpleasant grind. Even when everything's going fine and no one's shooting at you and nothing's blowing up, you're you're getting up at god awful hours. The food sucks. Well, not always. Djibouti, the food was pretty good. Uh, but, but the, you know, the combat rations, MREs, they're, it's just, it's just every, it, 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 they call it the suck, the military. The suck. So, uh, that, just the, the day-to-day uh, grind of it, I had no, no, I mean, I had a notion of it, but n- no r- realistic sense of it. And I had wanted to embed to, to actually try to get a little closer to the experience myself, obviously, without, you know, carrying a weapon and taking part. But, um, I, you know, I, so I didn't even really ex- experience the heat, the sleep deprivation, the bad food, the stress, you know, all, all of that. It, and even just from one degree of remove, it was uh, pretty, pretty amazing what people go through. I'll continue my conversation with Mary Roach after a break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, Casper. They're an online retailer for mattresses. Casper mattresses are American-made and obsessively engineered for comfort. They use two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, 
to give you just the right amount of sink and bounce. And they have a risk-free trial. You can try out your Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and returns. It's outrageous comfort at a polite price. So go to casper.com slash bullseye to check out their options. And they have a special offer for Bullseye listeners. Use the promo code BULLSEYE to redeem $50 toward a Casper mattress that works for you. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the NPR One app for your phone for exclusive bonus content from NPR's hit podcast, Invisibilia, including a look inside a radical way of treating mental illness in Belgium. Find the new season of Invisibilia, stories from your local station, and more great podcasts on the NPR One app. It's on your app store now. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Mary Roach. She's the best-selling author of a new book on military science. It's called Grunt. It seems to me like one of the things that uh, people, people like you and I who haven't served in the military underestimate is, um, you know, even with the increased recognition of post-traumatic stress disorder in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, um, it's difficult for someone like you or I to understand the kind of physical and emotional effect of, um, you know, not just like, oh, being in a firefight or getting shot mm-hmm. or a bomb going off, but rather the everyday going through the steps of uh, mm-hmm. being alive and being in your unit and being in your group and all that kind of thing uh, in the context of war. And in the context of a bomb could go off at, at any moment. And when I was thinking of embedding, <clears throat> one of the things that was going on at that time, the U.S. was mostly involved in training Afghan nationals for them to take over. And what there were some cases of uh, Afghan nationals on large bases, which are, you know, thought to be fairly safe, of someone who had misrepresented themselves just turning around and shooting someone. And there isn't any way. Uh, uh, you're not walking around with body armor all the time. You're not there. What do you do? So that's always got to be in the back of your head. And the, and just the, the the chronic low-grade stress, I would think, of that alone would be remarkable. One of the things that I found spending spending my childhood with my dad and his crazy vet friends, uh, which I say affectionately, um, was that one of the things about people who had been through these experiences and shared these experiences was that often they were really funny about mm-hmm. it. Um, and I imagine that that must have been a comfort to you in relating to these people in that your stock and trade has been kind of staring difficult and uncomfortable yeah. things in the eyes and and acknowledging what's funny about them. Yes, yeah. I, I, I um, People in, in the military are very... They're very funny, and they they have a they have a dark humor. I mean, the the slang that they come up with, and, the, and there's they're yeah. In the same way that people who work in uh, anatomy labs or work with cadavers, there's a kind of humor that's not disrespectful. It's not meant to be hurtful, but it's just when you're around death or the risk of death, or or I, I think humor kind of I don't know. It's it's it normalizes. It's comforting. It's it's if you're laughing, you're happy. I don't know. So I don't know where I was going with that. Well, you ended with a s- silent nod. 
It's <laughs> not a lot of not that useful in radio. <laughs> I was waiting for you to finish my sentence or my thought. Well, Mary, I am I am so grateful. I am so grateful to have you here uh, again, and you're you're always welcome on our show. Mary Roach's new book is called Grunt. It's about the science of the human beings and their human bodies uh, serving in the military. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Oh, thanks. It's always really fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. William Bell was a teenager when he started at Stax Records. Now, in his mid-70s, he's back. This was his first solo hit, still a soul classic, recorded now more than 50 years ago. I couldn't see Bell was one of the iconic voices of one of the most iconic soul labels ever. He laid down a dozen years' worth of hits before Stax folded in the mid-'70s. Then he had one of his biggest hits in the disco era. He wrote Born Under a Bad Sign. He served in the service right in the middle of his career. Uh, he has one of the most legendary Christmas soul hits ever. Stax reformed a couple of years ago. Bell re-signed with his old label. His new album on Stax is called This Is Where I Live. Here's a bit of the single, The Three of Me. It's not that easy to forget All the love you had And looking back on the man Makes the man I am so sad. Oh, the three of me, the three of me. William Bell, it's really an honor to have you on Bullseye. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, when did you decide that you wanted to be a singer? I think I started singing in church uh, around the age of seven with the church choir. But I think the the defining moment came when my dad took me to uh, a Sam Cooke concert when I was about 10. That must have been absolutely incredible. I mean, that was Sam Cooke just as he had become a secular singer, Secular, right? yes, absolutely. But I was following his career when he was with the Soul Stirrers. Were you a, Okay, so here's the question. Apparently, your dad was cool with it. Uh, that you were going to see Sam Cooke sing cir- uh, secular music. You were singing in church. Was everybody in your family on board with uh, Sam Cooke leaving gospel to sing soul music? Uh, not in the beginning because everybody was on Sam's case about uh, leaving the church to sing secular music. But uh, I just loved the way uh, he phrased and 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 uh, he treated a lyric and everything, even at that young age. And... Uh, his voice was just impeccable. So I um, talked to my dad, and he said, okay, I'll take you to the concert. And it was like I sat there about 10 rows back 
with my mouth wide open just watching him and marveling at him. I can, I mean, I can only imagine what it was like. He also had a reputation for um, driving women completely insane. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can only imagine what the scene was like at that show <laughs> when you're 10 and you're thinking like, hmm, maybe I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I can do this. No, but that was like a defining moment because he was sharp. He had, back then, they had the, the skinny suits, mohair suits on and, he just uh, had the crowd in a frenzy. So, I mean, I'm thinking, well, okay, I'd like to do that when I grew up. Yeah. How did you start uh, singing professionally? Um, I won a talent contest uh, that some friends of mine entered me into and then dared me to, you know, participate, and I won first prize. What did you sing? Uh, I did, a, uh, I think, a Hank Bell in the Midnight. I, I'm sure Hank Bell in the Midnight a tune back then because I was doing doo-wop stuff, too. Uh, as a kid, the doo-wop singers were big back then. And uh, I did that and, and won uh, first prize at in the talent contest and um, got a one of the prizes was going to Chicago to sing with the Red Saunders Band at Club DeLisa. So uh, from that point on, the Red Saunders contacted Phineas Newborn in Memphis and said, you need to listen to this kid. So he, I don't know how, but convinced my mom that to let me sing on Fridays and Saturday nights. <laughs> and uh, he had to tell her because his two children were in his band. or He had like a 14-piece orchestra, kind of like a Count Basie band. And uh, he said, well, I'll look after him the same as I would my own kids. And so she said, I remember her words, she said, as long as he's able to be in church on Sunday mornings, if he's willing to do that, I'll let him do it. What was it like to be spending all that time as when you were a teenager with a bunch of, like, grown men in the entertainment industry? It was great. I was, uh, as a kid, I was always surrounded up until I was about 10. I was an only child. So I was surrounded by uh, older people all the time. So I was kind of like an old soul. <laughs> but uh, those guys loved me to death. And they um, they were in their 20s, like 25, 26-year-olds. And they would play 45 minutes and I would come on and sing 15 minutes, and they would. I couldn't go out into the crowd, so they would take me backstage and give me a Coke or something, and I'd sit back there. Like you legally, like not like it was a, a technical limitation or a, a, you didn't want to show anybody up. Like you literally were not allowed to go out into the crowd because oh, no. it was a club, <laughs> and you were underage. Right. I could not go out and mingle with the the crowd. Uh, because I was underage, yeah. Well, I want to play a little bit of one of Stack's first great hits. Um, and you can tell me a little bit about your contribution to this record, because it's not one of your records. Uh, this is Carla Thomas and Gee Whiz. All right. Gee Whiz.
tell me about where you are on that album. I was just listening to that. Um, I was I came to the attention of Stax uh, through Chips Moman. Uh, they needed a, a group to sing backup behind Carla Thomas on Gee Whiz. And, and Chips Moman was a really prominent record producer oh, yeah. in, in Memphis. Yeah, back then. He was Famous with for Stax. producing Elvis, among other people. Yeah. yeah, but he was with Stax at the time in the early years. And he produced, by the way, I'll continue this, but he produced You Don't Miss Your Water for me, too. And um, he, uh, you know, told the group, uh, told the label about us. So I was with the vocal group, the Del Rios, and they brought us in to do the backup work. And that's how I came to the attention of Stax Records. How old were you? Uh, We were, I think I must have been about 15 then. And... uh, I had formed this vocal group because, like I said, doo-wop groups were popular. And on Saturday nights, they wanted me not to just sing the standards and stuff, so they wanted to appeal to a younger crowd. So uh, we did a lot of doo-wop stuff, the Flamingos and the Moon Glows and all those doo-wop groups that were doing that kind of stuff. So I uh, formed a group to do that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to singer and songwriter William Bell. His new album is called This Is Where I Live. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think of it now because Stax is, you know, this legendary record label. But at the time, it was like a studio in an old movie theater and a record store. Right? Absolutely. They were still improving on the studio <laughs> in the back. Uh, but it was. It was an old theater that they converted into uh, a recording studio. And um, so it it uh, we just kind of grew up together, you know. Uh, it was just a magical place to be, though, for a 15-, 16-year-old back then, learning your craft and all of that. Well, we found one of your teenage records uh, with the Del Rios, your vocal group. Let's take a listen to There's a Love. There's a love in my heart for you Keeps on burning Keeps on burning Also true Tell me darling Tell me darling What can I do Don't you know Don't you know I'm in love with you Every time I see you smile I keep hoping in a little while Maybe you'll love me Maybe tomorrow No more heartaches Trouble and sorrow I can't even go to sleep at night is that you singing the lead there? That's me singing the lead. How how old are we talking about? Uh, uh, there's a love. I was probably 15 then, yeah. Wow, and you co-wrote that record too, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's it like to listen to yourself singing at 15 years old? It's it's kind of uh, surreal. It's like I was just listening then and smiling, uh, but... Um, it was one of those times, those were the kind of songs that were in vogue back then. And actually, Sha Na Na uh, cut a couple of things on, on that, that particular cut. When you got drafted, did you were you afraid that this was going to be basically the end of your music career? Well, I, I, I felt like, well... Because uh, you sh- you got drafted very shortly after yeah absolutely you had your first hit record, and uh, I didn't really know what was going to happen at that point. But I felt like, well, I'll come out of the military and I'll go back to school. But because 
My mom wanted me to become a doctor. She wanted a son that's first doctor in the family, and I'm going, I don't know. I was into the music thing. <laughs> but um, I, when I came out, it, it was just like playing catch-up. And uh, I did think about, do I really want to do this, or uh, do I want to go back to school and finish my education and become a doctor or something like that but music was in my blood then <laughs> as much as these people were like you know they were like more even than running buddies they were like family to you i imagine given that you've been working with these working with these folks since you were 15 years old did you wonder when you got back after being in the service like is there a place for me here two years later i mean you had cut records you know when you were on shore leave but like I did. I, that was my thing. And they had some writers that were giving me songs and stuff. But I quickly found out that I was getting the songs that all of the superstars, <laughs> that they turned down. So I talked to Jim Stewart and I said, I want to glue my ears to the radio for a few weeks and find out what was happening musically back here in the States. And he said, fine. And uh, so I did that. And uh, my first song after that, my first hit song after that, because Steve Cropper and I did some writing together and other people, but nothing really caught on. And my first big hit was Everybody Loves a Winner, which was about me coming back and not being a part of the high echelon then. I mean, I was a low man on the totem pole then. I want, let's hear a little bit of Everybody Loves a Winner by my guest, William Bell. But my fame, oh, it died. And now my friends begin to hide. So around this time, you wrote a song for Albert King that ended up being one of your greatest contributions to the canon. I mean, one of the biggest hits that you were ever involved in. Um, and uh, what was it like to write for Albert King, a, a blues singer among soul singers? Albert was a friend. Um and uh, I was one of these artists that if I were not touring, I was hanging out in the studio, learning the behind-the-scenes aspect of recording and learning how to mic drums and and what and asking Tom Dowd and different people, what's this knob for, and tweaking this and that. And uh, so I happened to be there uh, in the studio when Albert was cutting, and he didn't have enough material songs. Uh, after a session, and Jim asked me, do you have something that Albert could do? And I had this one song that I was going to do for me, but I said, yeah, I've got one idea, but I only had a bass line, a chorus, and and a verse. And uh, so I sang it for Albert, and he loved it. So Booker and I went uh, that night and finished it up, came in the next day and laid the track, and... Uh, 
cut it on Albert, and Albert, of course, uh, didn't read or write, so I had to uh, stand behind him and whisper the <laughs> lines to him, but he nailed it. And when he put the iconic guitar work on, it just came to life. Wait, now when you say stand behind him and whisper the lines to him, you mean like in between lines? You would between. have to tell him what the next line was? <laughs> yes, in between lines. Like the way that like a lady with a guitar would lead a group of kindergartners through a song or something? <laughs> Absolutely. But... Um, yeah, I would whisper the line in one ear and he'd sing it on the mic, yeah. <laughs> After the break, more with William Bell about his six-decade career in soul music. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Hidden Brain is the NPR podcast about social science you can apply every day. Things like how being busy affects our motivation and when personalization online leads to discrimination on Airbnb. Find the Hidden Brain podcast with NPR's Shankar Vedantam at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hey, Max Fun listeners, I'm Dave Holmes. And if you've been missing my show, International Waters, you've been missing this. I am aroused, but I have zero idea. Really? Really? Yeah, sorry. Name a British lady. Name a British food lady. lady. Julia Childs? I'm afraid I can't accept that. No, it's not Julia. No. Uh, Come on, you must know your British food ladies. International Waters, a panel show where U.S. and U.K. comedians battle for pop culture supremacy. Subscribe right now on iTunes or at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is legendary soul singer William Bell who helped define the sound of Stax Records. He has a new record out on Stax, This Is Where I Live. Well, let's take a listen to Albert King uh, singing Born Under a Bad Sign, uh, written by my guest William Bell and uh, released on Stax in 1969. It must have felt good to hear him just tear that song up the way oh, that he did. Oh, a- absolutely. Albert was such a fantastic vocalist and guitarist. He was just, it give you chills, you know. But uh, And he loved working with me and Booker. Albert was the kind of person, because of his uh, condition of not being able to read, he didn't trust many people. But with Booker and I, he was comfortable. So he said, yeah, we just got together and... Uh, worked it up and whispered it to him. So he said, okay, let's do it. So we did it. What was it like to re-record this song that was one of your greatest songs, but that was so known for the recording that existed before? John Leventhal, when we were doing the session for this uh, the This Is Where I Live CD, said, I want to cut uh, the uh, tune on you, Born Under a Bad Sign. And... Quite honestly, I told John, oh, that's such an iconic song and it's been done by so many great artists. I don't know. And so he said, but I want to do it. I f- hear it and feel it totally different. And I feel it kind of laid back and with a swampy attitude and and almost acoustically. 
And I'm saying, well, create me a track and uh, let me listen to it. And when I heard the track, quite honestly, I didn't get it. So I'm going, but that iconic bass line is missing. And that was one of the things that drove the other one. And uh, so it took me a couple of days of listening to it and trying to get into it. The more I listened, the more it came and I could feel what he was doing to it. And uh, we came in about the third day, and I said, I think I can get it done, so let's do it. And uh, I nailed it on the first take. And well, he when he said, you nailed it, I'm going, no, let's do it again. He said, no, 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 you can't do it any better. We got it. So, <laughs> But uh, I was familiar with the song. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're familiar with the publishing yeah, I was checks anyway. With the song, but <laughs> Well, let's take a listen to William Bell singing his own song, Born Under a Bad Sign, uh, from his new album, This Is Where I Live. Born under a bad sign I've been down since I began to crawl Oh, if it wasn't for bad luck I wouldn't have no luck at all Hard luck and trouble, my only friend. You cut a really great Christmas song. I wonder, how do you write a Christmas song that is neither cliched nor lousy? <laughs> well, the formula for that would be you take a love song and turn it into <laughs> you just put a the Christmas word, song. You just put the word Christmas in every so yeah. often. <laughs> well, uh, every day will be like a holiday. I, I assume that's what you... Yeah, that was a song that we were recording. We had to record a, a, some sessions at Stax, and uh, so Booker and I were scrambling to do some songs, and it was around the holiday season, and it didn't actually start off to be a holiday song, but we figured, well, all of the surroundings were holiday and everything, and Al Jackson Jr. had the uh, fantastic idea of putting the sleigh bells behind it and and brought it to life, so uh, it became one of the standard Christmas songs. Adding sleigh bells to a song really is like the secret to making it into a Christmas song. Absolutely, That's yeah. the same thing, like, you know, the, the great outcast hit, Player's Ball, like the difference between it being a Christmas song and not being a Christmas song is like on the Christmas song version, they got a sleigh bell track. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's listen to William Bell uh, singing Every Day Will Be Like a Holiday from Mr. Bell, now that you're in your mid-70s, how does your voice sound to you? Uh, matured but good. You know, I, I um, it's not the high tenor thing that I did when I was 15, 16, but it's matured now. And uh, after being in the business so long, I'm able to express a lyric, I think, a lot better. And uh, 
I know my limitations and everything now, so uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with it. Yeah. Okay, so what are your what are your limitations that you know, and how does knowing them strengthen what you can do? Because you know uh, where you can take a song in terms of uh, vocal quality and not overstate a line or a lyric. And uh, if you're a little bit hoarse or something, you can sing a substitute note that will work just as good with it, you know, without straining for it. So uh, all of that experience comes into play then. It seems like you're singing a little bit of a different kind of song as well, that especially in the kinds of ballads that you're so known for singing, there's just a very different relationship in a love song between a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old and a girl and a 75-year-old? Oh, yeah. Um, You're more reflective now. I am. And um, you're not—it's about love, but it's not that hot and heavy, passionate love. It's more or less about uh, a much more mature, comfortable love, the, the space that you're in now. And you uh, have different values. You look for different things within a relationship. So it's it's comfortable now. So you're in, in front of me now, and you're in fine fettle, and you look fantastic. Thank um, you. And you sound fantastic, and you got a great new record out. You're also in your mid-'70s, and I imagine that you've lost friends, relatives, and colleagues who are really important to you. Yes. Not I, not unexpectedly, you know, it's just to age. The age factors, yeah. Uh, quite a few of them. I was looking uh, at the Stacks roster the other day, and I think we have maybe six or seven of us of the original Stacks people still left. So, and, and you think about that, and you say, okay— and we have a thing now. We it's not a bucket list, but <laughs> we all call each other and, and just uh, jokingly say, "Are you still standing? How are you? <laughs> How's the family?" You know. And we do stuff like that. As a matter of fact, yesterday I called David Porter and, and did that to him. And we just I said, "Happy you know, Happy Father's Day. How are you? You still feeling good?" You know. We do that, and not only from the Stacks family, just from other people that I've I've gotten to know in the business, uh, the Chuck Jacksons and people like that. You just call them up just to make sure they're in good health and fine. I like the idea that you have this not-dead-yet phone tree. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we do. (laughs) And we don't get sad about it. It's like when Benny King died, uh, Chuck and I were great friends with Benny and everything. And so we, we called and we talked and I said, well, we'll, we'll keep in touch with each other and call. If I don't, if you don't call me, I'm going to call you. You know, so, but we do, and it it, it 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 makes it a little bit easier when you can have someone that's still there with you that we knew the same people that you can kind of remember the good days and and the happy times. How's it different working now? Oh, I've got in my concerts. I've got the grandparents the parents, and the kid <laughs> now. But uh, ironically, it's great because uh, they're all singing the words to, some, especially some of the kids, they'll come back to the dressing room and they say, oh, I've been listening to you my whole life. And say, How old are you? Well, I'm 25. Yes, you have. <laughs> and, but they're sitting out in the audience singing along the lyrics to my songs. So I'm saying, okay, cool. 
that's not bad. <laughs> well, William Val, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. William Bell's brand new record on Stacks is called This Is Where I Live. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host, Call it the outshot. It's hard to imagine that this voice comes from a 13-year-old girl. Delta Dawn, what's that flower you have on? Could it be a faded rose from days gone by? And did I hear you say he was meeting you here today? To take you to his mansion in the sky She's 41 and her daddy still calls her baby All the folks round Brownsville say she's crazy That's Tanya Tucker, if you don't know. 13 years old. Singing a song she heard Bette Midler sing on The Tonight Show. Tucker's folks took her to the state fair. That's how she started in music. Like, she auditioned for the talent people at the state fair. That's real. Kind of a crazy thing. But when you hear that voice, you kind of understand how that audition went. She's a girl. I mean, she's vulnerable, kind of little. But that voice is huge, ferocious. There's a song on Tucker's second album. came out about a year after that song we just heard. And I just couldn't love it more. It's called What's Your Mama's Name? She was 14. What's your mama's name, child? What's your mama's name? Does she ever talk about a place called New Orleans? Has she ever mentioned a man named Buford Wilson? I've been watching this clip of Tanya Tucker singing it. She's wearing a gingham dress, goes all the way down to the floor, puffy sleeves. She looks sort of half beauty pageant, half little house on the prairie. She looks like a girl, but she looks like a woman too. And she sings like a woman, but a bit like a girl. The setup of the song is apparently a, a man soliciting a girl. And it doesn't take a scholar to find the resonance there. Thirty-some-odd years ago, a young man came to Memphis Asking about a rose that used to blossom in his world People never took the time to mind the young man's questions Until one day they heard him ask a little green-eyed girl What's your mother's name, child? Tucker was a bit lost in those teenage days. She started drinking. She ended up in rehab a few times before she got clean. You can feel the empathy in her singing. Not just for that girl who might be being victimized, but also for that man who's looking for something. 
And of course, it's a country song. The third verse is a twist. The twist is that man wasn't ever soliciting a girl. He was looking for his daughter. I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a corny old dad now. But it gets me every time. That's my outshot. A year and some odd days ago An old man died in Memphis Just another wayward soul The county had to claim Inside the old man's ragged coat They found a faded letter It said you have a daughter That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Borello. Our production assistant, Kristen Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Soup Anderson. Our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. You can download them, stream them, whatever you want. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. The host is the hilarious stand-up comic Guy Branham. This week, the gang talk about weddings in pop culture, plus the BET Awards, which I don't know if you saw them, but were like totally mind-blowing and amazing, and also soccer, which I don't know if you've seen it, but I think it's pretty boring. Anyway, uh, wide-ranging. Find Pop Rocket at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. I was just joking about soccer, okay? Don't, don't send me emails. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.